Heavenly Father, we bow in your presence. May your word be our rule, your spirit our teacher, and your greater glory our supreme concern. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, the uh, results of the survey completed by the congregation show uh, that you, the congregation, feel that we have a healthy church. It's varied. Uh, as most of us have a positive appreciation of church life. And despite the difficult times that we've faced during the year, the last year, we praise the Lord that the church is still here and thriving, that uh, things are still going on with the help of Zoom and uh, all the positive inputs of uh, so many people, ensuring that things actually happen as we hope for. Uh, and in such a diverse congregation with 27 different nationalities, it's not surprising that there are uh, different hopes and dreams for the future. And we can be confident that God will guide us and lead us, or uh, I'm saying us, because I feel part of you, even though I should be leaving next week. And, uh, but we will continue to pray for you. And that is our hope and expectation. We're, we're now uh, praying for the appointment of a, a permanent new pastor. And we're all praying for God's guidance and continued growth in the congregation. But I, I want really to concentrate today on St. John's Gospel. The, the reading that we had, um, we'll be bringing in parts of the Old Testament as well, but uh, in his Gospel, St. John does not set out to repeat everything that the other Gospel writers have, have said. He's actually um, doing, giving us a summary or a sample of the kind of things that Jesus did, conversations that he had, uh, from the life of Jesus and he know the, he's telling us the things that he knows from experience will help people to come to faith in Jesus and uh, to learn to live in relationship with him. And it's interesting that today's gospel reading, which isn't so familiar to many people or not easily understood, is the only thing that Jesus tells between Palm Sunday, which we'll celebrate next week, and the Last Supper. So it's the only thing that, he, that John mentions in that time. John must have thought it was important. The Greeks came looking for Jesus. Now when the New Testament mentions Greeks, it's not meaning necessarily people from Greece. He's meaning the people uh, who spoke Greek. And that would be over a whole area, the area that Alexander the Great conquered and introduced uh, the Greek language as a lingua franca uh, for, uh, for that, that area, the eastern part of the Roman Empire. And many of these Greeks in the first century rejected the myths of Greek uh, 
worship the gods of Greece and the Roman gods, and they were attracted to Judaism, the worship of the one God. And many of them were attending synagogues throughout the Roman Empire. And these particular Greeks had come to Jerusalem to worship. They must have been very keen to follow the God of the Jews. But they hadn't become Jews themselves yet. And when Jesus was told that Greeks were asking to meet him, he said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. It's as if he was waiting for this to happen. What was important and significant about the coming of Greeks to Jesus? Jesus had come to Jerusalem already knowing that it was a one-way journey. He wouldn't be going back to Galilee. He'd come to die. John's Gospel has already told us twice that the authorities wanted to arrest Jesus. But they could not because Jesus' hour had not yet come. And so when it's talking about this hour, Jesus says, the hour has come. And they, they, in those times, the hour had not come. It's meaning not just the passing like uh, 11 o'clock when we have coffee or, or uh, 1 o'clock when we have lunch. He's talking about a significant time. There's a significant time in the lives of individuals. The time when you meet somebody that you want to marry. The time when you get your first job. The time when you have a child. There are significant times. And there are significant times in the life of churches as well. When there are opportunities for change and movement. Ecclesiastes uh, says uh, there's a time for every purpose under heaven. And the coming of the Greeks signaled to Jesus that his time had come. This was the moment it was a fulfillment of Old Testament prophets that the nations would come and honor God's King, would come and honor God's Messiah. And Jesus declared, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now at first it seems as if Jesus isn't going to ask the question that Andrew and Philip asked, will you see these Greeks? Jesus doesn't answer that question immediately. He uses a parable, a parable of a grain of wheat, a tiny grain. You, 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 we don't see it very often because wheat comes to us as flour, doesn't it, or as cakes or biscuits, but a tiny grain of wheat. And if you plant it in the ground, what happens is that um, it grows roots and it puts up a little shoot and the shoot becomes a stalk, and the stalk has ears on the top, a little, uh, a little uh, cone of other seeds. And you might have 30 or 40 or 100 seeds on a single stem of wheat. 
And Jesus uses that parable of the little seed and he says, only when the grain of wheat falls into the ground will it bear fruit. And Jesus is like that grain of wheat. In a mysterious way, Jesus' death will lead to life for many. Jesus applied this same principle to his followers, to the disciples, and, the, and it applies to us too. With a deep wisdom from the Old Testament books of the Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. King Solomon, the son of King David, ruled Israel and he had an empire as well, other countries that had been conquered by David. He was powerful, he had amazing wealth, more than we can dream about. He had a vast harem of beautiful women and numerous family, numerous children. And he was famous for the breadth of his knowledge and wisdom. Solomon was a builder. He built the temple in Jerusalem, which was one of the wonders of the world. He built palaces, he built houses, he laid out gardens and parks. He had vast estates of farms with crops and animals. <clears throat> but when he reflected on all that he had done, he concludes, he writes, because he was the writer of Ecclesiastes and of many of the Proverbs, I considered all that my hands had done. All was vanity, a striving after wind, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. His achievements felt empty to him because he knew that one day he would die and there are no pockets in the robe that they bury you in, in a shroud. Everything that we achieve and do is left behind. So what are our ambitions in life? Are we looking for power and prestige or respect? Is our priority to gain wealth and luxury and the luxury and, dis and distraction that, and security that wealth brings? Do we use our time in the search for long life or happiness? Well, we can't know what tomorrow brings. It's an unknown thing. We can't see the future. The life that we have is only lent to us. We are not the owners of it. We can't keep it ourselves. Only by trusting ourselves to the Lord God, to God's loving care, offering ourselves to serve him, can we have confidence for today and for eternity? Jesus expresses this truth in hyperbole. Hyperbole is deliberate exaggeration in order to put a point forward. And this was commonly used at the time of Jesus. 
And the words that Jesus uses is a man, he says, a man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now, as Jesus' followers, we need to learn to let go of our selfish, self-centered lifestyle. To love the Lord our God with all our heart, to love our neighbor as ourselves, Jesus is not speaking of self-hate. He's talking about hating self-centeredness, which is quite different. We can't love our neighbor as ourselves unless we love ourselves too. Jesus taught that those who were troubled by worries, he said to them, seek first the kingdom of God and all his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. He told them, don't worry about clothes, don't worry about homes, don't worry about food. Everything you need will be given. Seek first the kingdom of God. So Jesus is calling his disciples to follow him in a life of service to God and to others. Whoever serves me must follow me where I am. My servant will also be. My father will honor the one who serves me. And then at the end of the passage that we had read to us, um, Jesus does answer the question that Philip and, uh, and Andrew asked about, uh, are you interested in talking to these Greeks? Because Jesus says, when I am lifted up, I wonder if he put his hands out like this when he said it, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. So yes, Jesus' ministry in Palestine had been largely to his fellow Jews. But when he was lifted up, his ministry would be to the whole world. This was the answer. The gospel was for all people, not just for Jews. Jesus knew the horror of what was coming and it troubled him deeply. He prayed desperately in the Garden of Gethsemane to be spared the crucifixion. But he gave his life. He said, not my will, but yours be done. And the phrase lifted up that Jesus used was also used of making a person king. When somebody is lifted up to royal status, it was the same, that was the same uh, glorified. But the same phrase was also used to describe lifting someone up on a cross to die a slow and painful death. The true God, the God of astonishingly generous love, shows his glory not by raw power, not by a dazzling display, but by self-giving love. He gave himself. The true God, 
his glory was seen throughout Jesus' life, but most fully on the cross. His death would look like a tragedy, but it would come to be seen as Jesus' crowning glory and the triumph of God's love. Jesus came to save his people from their sins, and the only way he could do that was by offering his own perfect life as a ransom for many. And at that very point, at that very point in history, at that very point on the earth's planet, where the forces of evil, human and demonic, were determined to frustrate God's plan of salvation, they did the worst that they could to Jesus, to expose Jesus as a fraud, to humiliate him, to blacken his name, to kill and to wipe him from the face of the earth. But at that very point when evil was at its greatest, Jesus, by his self-giving love, defeated the powers of evil. He broke the power of sin and death and set the prisoners free. And this happened at Passover, not on the Day of Atonement, not when a lamb was killed for the forgiveness of sins, but it happened at Passover. And at the first Passover, Moses led the people of Israel out of Egypt and set them free from slavery to Pharaoh. And what Jesus was doing was a similar thing. <clears throat> As John, who wrote John's Gospel, stood there with Mary, watching Jesus die on the cross, it seemed to anyone watching that those who had denied God's rule in the world, those who had laid waste to the world, those who had trampled on the poor and who had exalted themselves as kings and gods, it looked as if they were winning. But while Jesus hung dying on the cross, an unseen battle was taking place in the spiritual realm. The power of self-giving love won a battle. A battle over the powers of evil, of sin and death. And the victory was not seen at that moment. But it was won at that moment. The victory was not seen until three days later when Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus' hour had come as the climax of God's plan to ransom his people. He set the captives free from the power of sin, free from the curse of the law, free from death, and free to live for God. Jesus gives us the model to follow. He said, I came down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. On the way to Jerusalem, Jesus had already warned his disciples that to follow him would be very costly. He had already called them to take up their cross and follow him. 
the kind of commitment to self-giving love which Jesus modeled and asked us to follow could not be demanded by some kind of law like the Old Testament commandments. It had to be something that was a response from the heart because we have been touched by the love of God for us. Trusting Jesus as Lord, serving him as our king, allowing him to be captain of the ship of our life is the way of Christian discipleship. When we put our trust in the Lord Jesus, he sets us free so that we can serve. In a congregation, each member plays their part to make the church what it is. The Lord our God calls us to a new vocation, a life of service, giving our life away, taking up our cross like a seed falling into the ground, giving up its life so it can bear fruit. We give our lives to worship and to serve the Lord our God, to serve our brothers and sisters and to serve our family and our neighbors. It's a great vocation for all of us. Shall we bow our heads for a prayer? We thank you, Father, for leading us to repentance and faith. You ransom, heal, restore, and forgive us. You have made new life possible for us as your children, as citizens of the kingdom of heaven living under your law of love. Help us day by day to see you more clearly, to love you more nearly, and to follow you more nearly. Amen.